minds. And here is your host, Gary Cacciolio. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening. Also, thank the contributors to this show, who are Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Joseph Simkovic, author of How to Kiss the Universe, Ms. Aida, author, psychic, spellcaster, root worker, and witch. And you can find her at MsAida.com. M-I-S-S-E-I-D-A dot com. And this episode is being sponsored by Ginger Glasser. And you can find her at tarotbyginger.com. She's a tarot reader, evidential medium, and healer. And you can find her at tarotbyginger.com. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Kendrick Olson and... He was, I saw him on uh, Beyond Belief and I sent him an email and he said yes. So thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. It's going to be great to be here. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Yeah. So I, I was watching, you know, obviously like your, your background, you grew up in a haunted house and it looked like you had a really open family that, that was open to all this metaphysical stuff. What was that like? I don't know. It's kind of hard to compare that. Because right, because that's all you know. <laughs> <laughs> In some ways, it was pretty cool. It's like I, I get feedback from people that didn't have a life like that, that it's like, wow, Kedrick, you're one of the most interesting people I know. At the same time, you know, growing up that way through junior high, through high school, it sort of made me a bit of an outcast because I had a completely different point of view on how the world worked and what made sense to me didn't make sense to the people around me. Plus I had, you know, empathy. I could feel the emotions. I was aware of all the people around me at a very subtle level. And I could feel, you know, the, the teenage angst in the discord that goes on from there. And it just kind of made me withdraw and mm -hmm. pull away from everybody. So it was challenging and sometimes fascinating and interesting and enlightening at other times. It, it had its ups and downs. And I'm from what I can compare I think my ups and downs might have been a little different from other people's ups and downs, but all in all, good. How was that received in school? Like, were you like popular, or were you like, were you like, oh no, don't mess with that guy? He's like the devil worshipper. That's exactly it. I was the weirdo <laughs> goth kid. You know, I was. I I could hear the whispers and the people talking around me, thinking I was some sort of a devil worshipper, which of course I wasn't. And, you know, they just had a complete misperception of what it was. And it just made me roll my eyes. And I hate to say it, withdraw a bit more. I just wasn't going to mm -hmm. fight against the crowds. I wasn't, I'm not, to this day, I'm still not interested in changing people's minds. I like teaching. I like illuminating. But back then, even just like, that's what you think. That's what you think. I'll go find somebody that I can resonate with. No big right. deal. Yeah, there was so much misunderstanding over these different spiritual paths back then. I think now it's much better. I think a lot more people are open. This is the feedback I get from my kids because, of course, my kids grew up just like in a very similar way that I did, very open to the spirituality. They were aware of spirits. You know, when they moved out of the house, because they're now 21 and 23, when they moved out, they were like, how do we bring spirits with us? And they sort of, you know, were able to manifest what they needed spiritually around them. 
But growing up through school was still challenging. They were still sort of the outcasts, sort of the weirdos. But they did find more people, especially grown-ups, mm-hmm. that were empathic, empathic, yeah, empathic with them. You know, they they understood more, and they they still had a hard time fitting in and adjusting. But it wasn't as like, you know, administrators in school were just like harsh, no way, you know, cut. <laughs> just really down on me but my kids were had a lot more compassion yeah yeah it was pretty tough on me too as a kid <laughs> up in school and you know being interested in the occult and like my, my thing was like i was mostly interested in like more like the hermetic type of magic and tarot mm-hmm. and kabbalah and all that stuff and nobody understood it it was weird to them yeah ceremonial magic is it's fascinating stuff there's a lot of study involved a lot of practice and you're right it's that that stuff really most people just can't they, they literally can't they don't have the the mental capacity or the motivation to understand it to them it's just this weirdo symbols weirdo phrases weird stuff and like oh get that away from me yeah one of the things that i noticed too like, like you're into the more the, the, the norse mythologies and but i've always looked at them as very similar, you know, you have the, the, I can always pronounce it, the tree of Eggdrazel versus like the tree of life. You know, you have the runes versus the Hebrew alphabet. Um, so, so I always notice like the, those similarities between those two systems. You're absolutely right. Exactly. Yggdrasil, the world tree that holds the nine worlds in place. And the nine worlds, in essence, represent different densities of existence. You know, the light elves and the dark elves, the giants. Granted, we look at the mythology and we think mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings, giants and elves and trolls and dwarves. That's not what they were in the Norse tradition. The light elves were more like ascended masters, high-level beings, people who ascended to this higher state of being. There were nature gods. The The dark elves were more like the the nature spirits, the, the spirits that live in the rocks and the trees and the forests that helped keep things alive. The giants were like big, massive forces of nature. They were things that we coexisted in. And exactly what you're saying about the runes, the runes, sacred letters. They not only were the phonetic values of the language, Mm -hmm. but they had a sacred higher level meaning. And one of the fun things that I really love about this is in the Norse tradition with runes, there is a little manifestation formula that appears at the end a lot of a lot of magical rune scripts. And that word is Alu, A-L-U. And it's the same phonetic values as we find in the Tibetan and the Hindu systems with Aum. Mm-hmm. And it's the same values that we find in Hallelujah. Mm. It's like these same sacred sounds are repeated all over the place just in their own unique way. Wow. And I was also watching something with you on it, and you were talking about how, you know, runes were not originally made for divination, that they were really basically vibratory frequencies or sound, you know. And in, you know, that different mythologies like that, Buddhism, Hinduism, the universe came out of creation through sound. We see the same thing in the Norse. In the Norse tradition, when... Odin hung himself on the world tree for nine nights. It's like a shamanic sacrifice where 
Odin hung on the tree. And the thing about him hanging on Yggdrasil, the world tree, is remember, Yggdrasil is the force that holds those nine worlds in place. It gives everything an order. It gives a structure to everything. And with him hanging on the world tree, he's between the worlds. He's in liminal space. Mm -hmm. He's not in one world at all. He's between all of the worlds. So he has this access to a place called Ginunga Gap which is like the Greek chaos. It is that that time in existence before there was time in existence. So he has that ability to connect with this deeper level of reality. And when he discovers the runes and he grabs them up and he falls from the tree, there's a, 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 a stanza that's very telling that the runes were shaped by the Ginregan, which are like the high holy rulers, uh, the, the beings that were in existence before the gods, before our world, the runes were shaped by the Ginregan, but they were colored by the Fimblethuler. And Fimblethuler means the great superhuman, supernatural singer. And in the Norse tradition, a Thuler, a fool, Thuler, is a sacred singer. Think of it like a cantor in the Jewish tradition. They're singing the sacred songs. And a Fimblethuler Coloring the runes tells us right there that the runes are vibratory frequencies, that they are levels of consciousness, that the runes existed in a place before there was physicality, before there was time, and that there are these energetic vibratory frequencies that connect with consciousness in a way that underlines all of reality. That explains why music is so powerful. Exactly. They're like the, the harmonic overtones and undertones of the universal frequencies. Yeah, absolutely. Because, like, when I think, like, if you want to change your mood, all I have to do is listen to some music. Absolutely. And that changes my consciousness. And then that changes exactly. reality. It really does. You know, I, I agree with that. I use music for the same thing. I, sometimes I want to be sad and remember certain things. So I'll play those songs. Sometimes I want to be happy and get myself out of it. Music is the key to that. Hmm. One of the things that you um, described in, in that episode that I watched on um, Beyond Belief is you sort of combined a like almost like a holographic matrix theory with the traditional idea of, of like a, the tree of Igrazel or a Kabbalah type of tree. Hmm. What do you mean on that? Like, you kind of like you kind of like put it in like this um, term of like. Um, you know, reality sort of mirroring itself off of all these different things. Yeah, I, I do have like a, a set of universal principles. One of these days I'll write a book about them. It's actually outlined in hand and I've got it on the shelves behind me. Um, and one of those universal principles is that the universe is a reflection of itself in all ways. Mm -hmm. And that it's that holographic principle that if you look at how you are living you understand about what's going on in your inner world. You under look at how the world is shaped around you. You understand what you're projecting out there. And that goes on to the grand scheme of things, that we as a collective whole of humanity, how we are shaping the world is how we are working together and individually working and collectively working. Yeah, we are all interconnected at so many levels. Mm. And that's something that science is proving. Do you ever wonder how 
such ancient cultures from like the 3,000 years ago and before that had this knowledge. Yeah. There are some times I wonder about that. Like, where did some of this come from? And I've really resolved, the more I look around where we are today and studying in ancient cultures and just looking at the proclivity of everything, definitely ancient cultures knew some things that we don't know. You know, how did these guys move massive stones? How did they shape them and fit them so perfectly together like they were melted? We don't know how they did that. That's some of the stuff that escapes us. How do the Dogon people know about the Nomo from Sirius? Mm-hmm. Oh, do they know these things? Well, there's a little hint to us, sort of a hint that comes from the Norse, and we see it reflected throughout a lot of Asian and European traditions, and even into the Middle East. In the Norse lore, it talks about Odin and the, the Aesir, the high gods, leading from the very far, far east. And they went on a trek around the world. And in uh, the prose Edda, Odin is known by a bunch of names. There's like a hundred names for Odin. And the explanation for that is because he travels all over the world teaching people the wisdom that he knows, and they call him by the name that they best understand him Mm -hmm. by. And so he's been traveling all over the world under these different names, now, if we go back to that word, Aesir, A-E-S-I-R, it really just means the high gods. It's the Norse high gods. It's one of the words for gods. Old Norse and, yeah, Old Norse language has probably three or four words for gods. But the root word of that, ice, A-E-S, is the same root word that we find in the Vedic tradition for one of their types of gods. You see, the Norse have two different types of gods, the Aesir, the Vanir. The Vedic tradition has two kinds of gods, mm-hmm. the devas and the asuras. And the devas are, you know, like the high holy ones. They're the, the, the blessed rulers, so to speak. And the asuras are the rebellious ones, the ones that kind of push back. And they were eventually cast out. And in the Vedic tradition, they say that these asuras, guess what? Wandered all over the world, teaching the wisdom that they had bringing this kind of wisdom to people all over the place. So we find very similar teachings from Odin in the Eddas as we find in Zarathustra, that we find with Thoth, that we find with Hermes Trismegistus, that we find with Viracocha in South America. And so why are these teachings, these very similar teachings, being spread all over the world in all of these traditions describing a very similar-looking man It just makes me go, hmm, was there some entity, was there some being that did bring these teachings throughout the world and just went from culture to culture bringing them up? It's a question. I don't have an answer for that. But if we're putting those pieces together, maybe this is why some of these ancient cultures seem to have this higher level knowledge Mm -hmm. is because they had these beings that were teaching them. But, but. Even though they had those beings teaching them then, today we have these writings, we have these esoteric teachings, and I do say in the modern world, the age of the occult is over. The occult, the reason why these teachings were became occult is because really the church cracked down on it. Anybody who was practicing teaching these things, they were executed. They were killed for heresy. 
So they had to go hidden, and that's what a cult means, to be hidden. They had to go underground. They had to stay hidden. And we don't need to do that anymore. Right. We have access to all of these esoteric teachings. You can read everything you want to about hermeticism. You can read everything that you want to about the Eleusinian mysteries, everything that we can. You can get the, the Nag Hammadi scrolls, read about Gnostic Christianity. All of these old esoteric forbidden teachings are open and available to us today, as is access to these higher level beings. They're everywhere. We can tune into them. We can raise our frequencies up, and they do. I've talked to so many people, even myself, who have connected with these higher level beings, received downloads of these higher level teachings, and bringing them into this world. So it's not necessarily that the ancient world had some different knowledge or had access to stuff. I think we got a little sidetracked through the Middle Ages mm-hmm. and you know into the early 20th century, but now we're coming out of that and people are starting to have a new awakening. They're having a new level of connection. And we're starting to see more and more people tuning in and having high-level gnosis. And I think we're coming back around into an age where we're bringing this high-level teaching and mass, where before it was scattered and left to just a few people who could tune into it. It's a very interesting cycle we're going through. Yeah, I never really thought of it that way. Maybe we somehow blocked our access to that knowledge and now we're that's becoming unblocked. And, and you're right, you know, like even like me, like as a kid, finding books and information on this stuff as a kid was was not easy. <laughs> you know, it was not there was no Amazon, there was no internet. It was still sort of secret back then. Like you couldn't find too many books on on any of this, like like Hermeticism and like ceremonial magic, like you know, some books by Israel Regardi or Crawley, and that was that was about it. Right. And now it's everywhere. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, for me, my big turning point was Secret Teachings of All Ages by Manly P. Hall. Mm -hmm. I've always had a copy of that with me throughout my entire life. I found that as a young teenager and just devoured it. And that opened up so many doors for me. And I think the work that Manly P. Hall did and the Theosophical Society really helped to tear down those walls between the esoteric and the exoteric Mm -hmm. because anybody who wanted that sort of level of teaching manly manly p hall's works were right there and open and then you know nowadays what we have lon milo duquette out there bringing this stuff out like crazy we got uh so many organizations so many people the names are kind of leaving me right now but that's everywhere it is it is and and also i mean what do you think about like the new age, how they kind of, the new age movement, how they kind of, they don't change it, but they kind of reframe it. They, they make it less esoteric, essentially. They make it, you know, they simplify it. I don't want to use the word dumbed down, because that's probably not the right word. The new age movement was necessary at one point because there was still opposition from mainstream spiritual thought, mainstream religion that really, and even to this day, some groups still have this attitude, if you aren't following our set of belief, our narrow bandwidth of what is acceptable, then you're completely satanic. And the New Age movement was necessary for the time because they brought their message of peace, love, and light, and hope, and compassion, and acceptance in a way that was, let's say, tolerable. 
so that they could really push back and say, no, we're not satanic. No, we're not evil. No, we're not awful. No, we're not dark and scary. We're peace, love, and light. And so it was needed at that time, but it missed some very important things. You know, when we're just focusing on peace, love, and light, we aren't getting the full human experience. We, we still need our anger. We still need our jealousy. We still need our hurt feelings because it's a part of our brain, our limbic system, our amygdala are designed to have these ranges of, mo of emotions. And if we push those emotions down, we push those feelings away, we push those thoughts to the side going, no, I have to be peace, love, and light. Well, that introduces a weird form of pathology because if you get a moment of anger, well, obviously I got angry, therefore I'm not a very spiritual person. I'm failing at my spiritual work. Therefore, something's wrong with me. Well, there's nothing wrong with you. This movement that just pu pushes peace, love, and light, that's fine. That's great, but we need to know that there's another dimension to it. And when we get to the law of attraction, when we get to the secret, think and grow rich, miracle club, when we get to these groups, they are missing a very crucial thing that the ancient hermetic teachers knew. All of this law of attraction, all of this mm -hmm. think and grow rich, all of that, it's beautiful, it works, but it's coagula. It's all coagula. There's no solve. You have to clear space in order to grow stuff. You have to get to the, the tower card sometimes. To, you know, the tower card and the tarot. You have to knock down those buildings, those structures, so that you could have a clear foundation to build off of. And if you're just doing the coagula work, you're building and building and building, and then everything falls apart. Well, why is it falling apart? There's nothing wrong with you. You got to do the solvay work. You got to get into the deep, dark places, which the new age movement doesn't like to go. Mm. It doesn't, it just wants to spiritually bypass in a sense. It's great that it's bringing the notion of energy flow. It's great that it's bringing energy healing chakras and Kundalini awakening and new age and meditation. It's beautiful that it's doing that, but it also needs that other dimension that as a human being, we still have our shadows. Mm -hmm. We still have this other stuff that we need to work on and clear out so that we can actually become this higher level being that's unencumbered. Mm. So it was good for its time, but we need to move on. We need to evolve it to, a, to something that's more reflective of the full human condition. Right. You know, I, I think my own opinion is the anger, the sadness, the stuff that we perceive as negative emotions can sometimes be our greatest tool. Because when I feel that way now, I embrace it, I focus on it, and I almost use it as like a like a place of like well it's like the best place to cry for help. Is when I'm in that deepest, darkest, most desperate pain that I could ever imagine. And at that moment when I cry out for help and just let it be, are those moments where I have the most powerful epiphanies. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Because if everything was nice and hunky-dory and pleasant, we would just be complacent and passive. We wouldn't want to change. We wouldn't want to grow. We wouldn't want to be more than we are. And when we have that pain, we have that deep suffering sometimes inside, it gives us that opportunity to 
opportunity to reflect inward and go, why? What's going on? Where is this coming from? What do I need? And sometimes these these inner feelings that we originally perceive as negative or self-detrimental, they're helping us in some way. And when we can really better understand what they are, they can actually be allies for us, for the goals that we're seeking, for the path that we want to live. But that's never going to happen if we're pushing them down, pushing them away, saying, oh, I'm not doing my spiritual work right if I'm feeling sad today. Right. Well, that is part that's of what we're taught. work. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Is, is to put it away. Like not, I'm not spiritual if I'm if I get mad at somebody for, for hurting me. Justifiably hurts me and I get mad. And I'm also I'm beating myself up for not being spiritual because I'm feeling angry. It's not productive. It's just that creates like a whole separate cycle of suffering. Exactly. If we look at runes, runes give us a great example about... So let's say how the new age movement isn't really giving us a full spectrum because there is a very popular book out there about runes. I'm not going to mention it, but there's a very popular book about runes that makes all of the runes nice and happy and friendly. For example, it takes the rune Thurazaz and it tells mm-hmm. us that Thurazaz is a gateway an opening to a new place, a new way of being. Well, no, in, in the Norse tradition, Thurazaz is about these vicious, angry, destructive, violent, horrid beings that really just want destruction and chaos and disrupt and everything bad, bad. And when we look at this rune Thurazaz, it is all about violence and aggression and hostility. It's not a gateway unless you stick like a a stick of dynamite in the wall and you blow that wall open, there's your gateway. (laughs) And so that is kind of the difference between... Old Norse spirituality. Sure, runes will have Vunyo about joy and happiness. It'll have Gebo about generosity and, and connecting and being with each other. Yera about abundance and growth and having plenty. But it also has Thurzaz about aggression. It has Hagalaz about disruption and discord and natural disasters. Mouthies about need and constraint and not having what, what you need to, to survive. But that kind of all got a little bit softened when that book came out, when the New Age movement found ruins. It got softened and everything was nice and pleasant and happy. And I'm like, no, runes are actually a real reflection of everything that it means to be human mm-hmm. at the spiritual level. There's a couple of things that I really find fascinating about runes. One is that they're, they're shapes. They all come from the, the, the shape of the tree. They're all like, you know, you pull them out and make, different sections of it. And the other thing that I think is interesting too is, or I sort of associate them too with, is sacred geometry. Yes. Yes. Uh, I did a little bit of exploration on that. I've got a diagram that I've got to write a book about. It's part of also what's outlined here that i got to work on. It's a six-pointed star diagram that has the shape of all of the runes in it from the Elder Futhark and the Younger Futhark. It has all of the shapes of the runes because all of the runes basically have 60 and 120 degree angles in all of the runes. Mm-hmm. Those are the same angles we find on silicon dioxide, quartz. The same angles we find in water, ice. It's also the same angles that we find on the seed of life and flower of life. 
Wow. And if we stop and we look at the flower of life, at every one of those little vesica Pisces that are all over the flower of life, mm -hmm. you can actually find all of the shapes of the runes within those vesica Pisces. Hmm. That, that's pretty cool. I didn't know that. You know, one of the things that I used to do when I first learned about runes, though, is like if I had a situation in my life, right, I would look up at trees, and the first rune that I could find in the pattern of a tree would be what I need to work on. <laughs> because it can be found so easily in nature. Yep. I like that. At, at first, I used to be skeptical of that because I'm like, it's just shapes out there. They're just your own mind making it mm -hmm. up. But then my brain went, stop. Yes, 100%. It is your mind making it up, but it's your subconscious mind trying to talk to the conscious mind through the symbolic reference of going, look, here's this shape. Here's this symbol. Pay attention to that. That's important. And then when you do that inner reflection of what that symbol means and how it works for you, then it's absolutely relevant. Yes, the shape is just on the tree for everyone to see. Mm -hmm. But the fact that you noticed it and you made that connection is why it's relevant for you. Right, because there's like a hundred, like like probably all the, all the shapes are there, you yes. know. But it's the one that pops out to me. So because my, my mind is like, notice that that's the one that I need. It, it, somehow our minds recognize this sacred geometry. It's still a language for us to understand that, that's there for us. That's absolutely true. And that's why I'm teaching people how to develop their own symbolic, their own symbolic dictionary by looking for those symbols <laughs> everywhere. And sometimes the symbol isn't just a rune, no. but maybe it's like, Whenever you're having a moment of turmoil and you're looking for an answer and there's like the color yellow there, something pops up that's yellow. And then you look at what that yellow thing is and you notice how that yellow makes you feel and like, oh, that yellow is a symbol or numbers, right? Mm -hmm. People yeah. see 1111, 222, 333, 444 all over the place. It, those numbers are there all the time, right? The clock is mm -hmm. going to be 222 twice a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. But that moment when you're wondering, when you're thinking, you're like, what do I do with this? What do I do with that? And then it's 3.33, and you notice, like, oh, it's 3.33. Beautiful. That's your subconscious mind. That's your guides. Higher-level beings poking you, going, look at the clock right now. Because that's a relevant <laughs> moment to you. And this is important to pay attention to what you were thinking about, what you were feeling, and what you were contemplating, because that's the moment that you want to pay attention to. Mm. So... They're right out there. Those people that are skeptics, yeah, it's always that way. It sure is. But it's your mind that gives that relevance to it. And that makes it so much more important. So what are these higher level beings? Like, Have they always been there? And why do they even care about us? That's a valid question. Yep, they're always there, always have been. They've always been around, at least in my experience. And when people talk about these, you know, even the ancient cultures, mm -hmm. they were the genius and the daemons to the old, old, uh, Greeks and Romans. The, to the Norse, they were the Desir, the Alpha, the Dr. The old Norse described them. They've always been around. They're always here. They're always waiting for us to communicate with them. Some are humans. Some are humans that have moved to a higher state of being. When I'm working with clients, I always call in guides so that you know, the session is for their best work. 
the guides are always there. And I've seen guides that have been everything from a family member that's hanging out trying to, to guide and influence things in the best way to a human being that just had another lifetime and now this is what it wants to do and how it's working to, and I hate to say it because it seems so wacky woo-woo, but that's what I do, that it seems like they're beings from other worlds or other dimensions. Sometimes they're entities that have never had a body. They come in like a myriad of flavors and shapes and sizes. And why do they care? Sometimes I don't know. I wish I had a better answer, but sometimes it's like they've got nothing better to do than to care. Sometimes they mm-hmm. feel a karmic connection. I don't want to use that word, but I don't know how else to describe it because we're, we're working in a place where we, we don't have a good vocabulary. But there, there's like some connection that they feel that they really want to be a part of it. And sometimes it's like, oh, this one person doing their work is going to be influencing, influential in a certain way for certain things that are going on for the collective whole. So they're here to give that one person that nudge in that right direction that will cause a cascading domino effect that will affect so many other people. They come for a bunch of reasons, and sometimes I have no idea why they're there. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know either. I One thing I, I, I don't know, they show up more when we ask them for help. Do you think that's true? Like when we ask for help, especially when it comes from a, a place of authenticity, authenticity they'll, they'll show up to help. 100% of the time. Right. And, and there's no, I, I mean, for me anyway, I don't think there's any special way to call out for them either. You know, like, like we, you know, like, like, you know, I have you know, all these, there's like thousands of books out there and grimoires of different rituals and incantations and potions and all of that to call upon these entities. But really, I think all you have to do is ask from a place of authenticity. Exactly. In a weird sense, it's sort of like you're tuning into them. You're moving yourself to this higher state of mind, maybe. You're coming at a place where, like, hey, I need help with this one thing. And you're getting a kind of an internal feel of what that one thing is that you need. And then you open yourself up to being receptive mm-hmm. to that sort of help. And this is the part that kind of blows my mind, and I don't quite understand it because it's not linear. It's just kind of weird. But the fact that you are opening up, tuning in, and making yourself receptive to that is only half of the equation. That guide is also tuning in and opening up and saying, hey, is there somebody out there who needs help in this sort of a way? Because this is something I'm unique at helping at. Is there Mm. somebody that is on this frequency? And it's like you form this bridge together. Like You make these train tracks together. You're reaching out saying, hey, I need help with this. Hey, is there anybody else that needs help with that? And then you connect. I mean, this is going to sound weird, but a personal experience of mine is where I'm living now. I've got a garage that I park in, and it's not in a perfect straight line. There's like some weird angles. You can't get in and out in a straight line. You just can't pull in straight. You can't pull up. You just can't. You have to maneuver a little bit. And so every time I get into the car where I'm going into the garage or I'm coming out of the garage, I reach out and say, hey, is there a guide that can help move me through this one? And I swear, there's like these little nudges like, okay, stop, turn your wheel this way, go a little bit, turn your wheel that way, and go. And if I just stop and I listen, it's like I can feel 
that there's somebody there that has an outside perspective saying, okay, move your car this way, now move it that way. And it just works out like magically every time. It's kind of weird, but there's <laughs> somebody cool. there that wants to help me get in and out of the garage. <laughs> I, I need a driving genie. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, so what do you think about evil spirits? Do you, do you think that there's evil spirits that need to be, you know, the haunted house where people are tormented and things like that? What, what is your take on it? Cause I know like I watched in that other interview, you had like different, um, ideas on like, you know, what a poltergeist is, what a demon is, you know, what a regular human ghost is, etc. Yeah, let's go back to one of my universal principles. You know, like the universe is a reflection of itself in all ways. And in that sense, whatever you put out to the universe, you get back. Mm -hmm. And so if you're putting out evil and destruction and death, well, you're going to get that back. And if that comes back at you, that means that if there's some evil thing out there that wants the destruction of everything, it's going to get it fed back to it, and therefore it now no longer exists because it destroys itself the moment it comes into the creation to do that. So you can't have an evil being. You can't have these terrible, awful things that exist just purely for the sake of destruction and malevolence because it gets fed back onto itself and then it's gone. So what else is there out there? Well, this is where it gets a little complicated. And one of the things that we have to come to an awareness of human beings is as human beings, we are very powerfully creative entities. We create things all the time. It's not something we're taught to do. It's something we've never even really been told, so we're not aware of it. And this sometimes makes us feel like a victim to external sources. If we are feeling fear, let's say there is a ghost in the house, a spirit of somebody, whatever we want to call that entity in the house, it's a human being, this energetic presence of a human being, and it gets curious about a book on your shelf, and it's like pulling at the book, and it drops the book, you're alone in that room, you're now freaked out. And everything you know about the paranormal comes from movies and TV shows. And you're used to seeing a book fly across the room in the t movie, and everyone getting scared and possessed and bad things happening. You see the paranormal investigator TV shows, which come across as really believable, but they're not. And of course, these guys are freaking out any like creak and bump and thump that goes on. They're scared. They're freaked out. So we're being trained. That book falls. Oh my God, there's a demon. It's awful. I need to be scared. We're producing fear. Mm -hmm. Now we're actually creating something called a thought form. And ancient traditions all over the world talk about thought forms. In the Norse, they're called hukam. They're, they're right in the Norse. And you're creating this thought form, which is just a little ball of energy that subsists off of fear. And when you're home alone at 3 o'clock in the morning, you're just kind of getting chill, relaxed or whatever, and all of a sudden that wave of fear comes over, it's that thought form you've created. It's not evil. It's not trying to hurt you. It's trying to scare you, so you're producing fear energy to feed it. And that's the way a lot of these entities are out there. Egregores are collectively created beings 
where we come together as a culture and say, ooh, this Penhurst Asylum, there were really terrible, there were really terrible, awful things that happened. There were definitely lots of suffering and lots of horrible things that happened to the people that were, that were admitted to this facility and people died under horrid circumstances. And the more we're telling the stories about how awful Penhurst is, about how haunted Penhurst is, about there's got to be this big, nasty, scary, evil thing, our collective belief creates this big nasty that lives in Penhurst. And yes, it is subsisting off of the torment and the suffering and the fear that is brought into it. And it's very powerful. It's alive. It's consciousness. It does have a consciousness in its own way, not like ours. And it's there. It's almost, it's not quite a sovereign entity like a human being is or an ascended master, but it's there. And if you go messing with it, it's going to bite back in a very bad way. In much the same way, you don't want to go out hiking in the woods and you see a sleeping bear and you're going to poke the bear. Well, that's just dumb. Okay. <laughs> so you're not going to go into Panhurst to poke the bear. It's just dumb. But if you can respectfully coexist with it, you realize that it's a functioning entity in the landscape of the paranormal, just like a bear is a functioning entity in the landscape of the wilderness. You don't mess with it because it will bite you back, but you can respect it. You can coexist with it. You can observe it. You can study it. You can be there with it and not have a problem. And the way I refer to evil and think about evil and these evil entities there is a brilliant line in Doctor Who. I know it's science fiction, but mm. Doctor Who said this really beautiful line about evil. He said, evil really is just a matter of which side of the fork you're on. So even if we go to the landscape of the wilderness world, if a fox kills a rabbit to the babies of that rabbit, that fox is an evil entity. But the fox brings that dead rabbit home to its babies and those fox babies consider that fox to be an angel. It's mm -hmm. just our interpretation right. of what we're putting onto our experience and how we're propagating some of these negative stories and these negative things out there. Yes, demons are real because we created them. And yes, they're validating certain religious aspects because they're there. But when you realize it's the human consciousness creating this and building this reality to fit its expectations, then you understand how powerfully creative we are as human beings. And when we understand that, we can reshape this energetic landscape that we're all forming together. And these entities will either have to get a new job or they will just kind of starve out of existence mm. because we're not feeding them with our fear anymore and our belief. It's kind of like that hermetic principle of polarity. Yes. You know, you, you're not going to have... Love and hate are two ends of the same stick. And here's the thing I like to think about about that polarity principle. Is, okay, we're going to have the pendulum that swings back and forth across a, a singular fulcrum. And let's say that this is between fear and joy. Between scarcity and abundance, right? Mm -hmm. That's where it's swinging. But nothing says that that fulcrum has to remain fixed. Let's say we have this spectrum that we're balancing between, but now we're shifting the fulcrum to the more of the positive end. And now we can redefine what 
this spectrum of polarity exist. It doesn't have to be good and bad. It could be great and pretty okay. decent. We could shift that fulcrum with our own will. Hmm. I never thought of it that way. Uh-huh. That's a good one. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the other thing, like like with the, the spirits that we're, we're creating with our collective consciousness too, I mean, we can also use that to our benefit. And a lot of magicians do. They will create yes. an entity. They go out and do certain tasks and then put it to bed or whatever or keep it around. You are absolutely right. Just like every demon is a created type egregore, every angel can be a created egregore that's helping. And, and of course, if we go to the biblical angel, they tend to be, the Bible tends to like read angels as genocidal maniacs. They're horrid. Yeah. But today's world, right? <laughs> that's not what angels are in today's world. And these egregores that we create for angels are much better to work with. We can work with them on a level. I do believe that most of the deities in pagan traditions are egregores of some form or another. Plus, we can create servitors and tulpas. We can create all of these sort of entities that are out there for our own benefit and for their benefit. You know, that's one of the things about working with egregores, be it angels or ascended masters or whatever they are, is you're both getting a benefit. You know, you can work with tulpas. It benefits both. Mm -hmm. It can be a completely symbiotic relationship. I don't subscribe to the uh, oh the goetic idea of uh, bringing the the demon in and demanding it and uh -huh. threatening it with whatever if you don't do what I tell you to do. That's just gonna piss the thing off. Right, like uh, what is it, the Book of Evermill and the Mage? Yeah, <laughs> let's work together. There's no reason why you can't call some of these entities into the presence with you. And have a mutual, respectful relationship mm -hmm. instead of a demanding, controlling, threatening kind of thing. It's like, who wants to work in a relationship like that? It, it's not beneficial. There's no symbiosis there. Uh, apparently King Solomon did. True. You <laughs> <laughs> see where that got him. Yeah. <laughs> as far as I know, that's pretty much where it came from. It's a greater book or less. Greater and lesser books of Solomon were those yes. texts. I don't know if those. What do you think about those texts? Do you think those are like the ones that are out there? Do you think they're actually valid? Do you think that information was passed down from King Solomon, or do you think it was just somewhere along the line channeled and then written up by Agrippa and then you know scattered through a bunch of books? I do think it started with some source and then shifted. If we look at any medieval grimoire, and I do mean just about any medieval grimoire, they're awful. They're terrible. And uh, this is where I could look at the Norse. If we go to the Norse practices between, let's say, 800s and the 1000s, this is the Viking era, right? This is what people, this is the mm -hmm. old Norse, what people tend to romanticize when they think about Vikings. Sure, it wasn't hunky-dory, pleasant, wonderful, but... It wasn't, it wasn't, ugh, it wasn't gross. It wasn't just disgusting, crappy stuff. It was like, okay, we have nature spirits, let's work with them. We have the gods, let's work with them. Let's, you know, cooperate. Let's make things happen. But then we get to the medieval times, and it starts to be like, 
cutting the the skin off of somebody's body and stealing a coin from a widow and putting that in it so that you can put these pants on. Wear these <laughs> pants so that you can get fortune. It's like you don't find that until the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. The middle, you know, when you look at you know even the false hierarchy. Any of these books that were written in Europe, they're horrible. They're, you know, it's like watching a horror movie today. Like, yeah. you know, like watching an Evil Dead movie. There's no way in hell anybody's doing these things. <laughs> these books were written by, I, I really believe, written by control mongers hmm. that said, this is how evil and how terrible that, you know, sick minded individuals wrote these books so that they could use these as excuses to go clamp down and hurt other people and then in today's world people may not have that degree of discernment you know they'll pick up some of these books from the middle ages and go oh great so i need to put down a a circle of human skin and get a cat's head and a dead <laughs> bat and you're like no nobody did that until the somebody wrote about it in the middle ages and even when we get to the goetia and the false hierarchy those 72 demons that are highlighted in there were beneficial loved gods of the Macedonians, the Babylonian, the Canaan people. Right, they like Baal. Right. These gods that were very beneficial and wonderful were literally demonized and then written down as demons. And it's like a reflection of just how awful medieval grimoires were. They were just the gross. <laughs> My favorite was always the hand of glory. It's like you need the left hand of a guy who's been hung on the night of a full moon. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Why would anybody do that? It makes no sense. <laughs> Who thought of that? <laughs> Out of his mind. <laughs> and of course, this is what people think the occult is. Yeah. And this is, you know, what the propaganda about the occult was, is people doing these sick, horrible torturous things when it's like here here's why none of this works and here's the way i've come to understand it if we go back to the concept of frequency Mm -hmm. and when we look at frequency and even sound we have constructive and destructive interference constructive interference is when you have tones sounds that are in phase with each other and when they're in phase they make the, the sound louder You know, the peaks and the valleys compound on each other and they increase the energy. They strengthen the energy of that sound. So they sound louder. Deconstructive interference is when they're like 90 degrees out of phase. And they're where you have a peak, you have a valley, and it neutralizes that energy. It brings that energy to zero. So let's say you're trying to do, uh, not you, but the general spec. Somebody's trying to do a magic spell and they want to increase their prosperity with this magic spell, they're creating the frequency of abundance and prosperity. But in order to do that, they're going to do, what, a human sacrifice? They're going to bring somebody into this that is screaming and yelling and terrified. They don't want any benef- anything beneficial for this magus putting out this ritual. That's pure deconstructive interference to the the energy that this guy is producing. So bringing somebody in to hurt them, to torment them, to torture them, never works. Right. You're bringing deconstructive interference to the patterns you're creating. If we're all in a frequency level, you want everybody to be on a mutual level, on an agreement level, sharing in this experience and growing from it together. 
And that will raise that energy up in a collaborative way and it will boost the efficacy of the work so much, you know, like tenfold, hundredfold by having everybody working together and cooperating and wanting to do this work together. Right, because there's no disharmony. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that's where the occult just got all this bad word and bad vibe. And now you got people that just can't discern that. Or unfortunately, maybe they're mentally ill, mm-hmm. thinking that this is the way things are. And then we get the conspiracy theories that spin out of control. It's just like, no, nobody's <laughs> going to be hurting somebody to try to make magic happen. It just can't work. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't happen. Yeah, it's just those right. crazy old books that <laughs> that were circulated as, I you know, disinformation, just like we have disinformation now. Exactly, exactly what it was. Just so they could burn people, I guess, at the stake. Mm-hmm. Burn people and scare the masses back into the pews and filling the coffers. Absolutely, yeah. it's horrible. I, I think like. You know, one of the things that we're experiencing now, too, is um, some of that. I think some of the tension that we feel now, some of the division, you know, in our culture is because of that. Because you have, like, one group of people are saying, okay, you know what? I'm going to start looking at all these different ancient traditions. I want to start looking at things like quantum physics. I want to start researching frequencies and cymatics and, and, and all these things and figure out how I can apply these things to my life to elevate my own consciousness. And then you have these other people over here, like the church guy, you know, the, the preacher, he's like, this isn't good for business. So I have to create a monster, a, a, a fake villain to get people to come back to me. Exactly. In fact, let's, we don't have to look much further than the past hundred years to see this happening. In the 1800s, the Ouija board rose into popularity. <laughs> you know, people were using it all over the place. You could go to, mm-hmm. to like a, a venue, you know, like a tea house or a, a bar, you know, and use Ouija boards and table tipping. It was a popular thing. People were connecting with loved ones with higher level spirits. You know, there was there were Ouija clubs and seance clubs. People were doing it all over the place. And, of course, the church didn't approve, didn't think it was there. But do you know when the Ouija board became associated with demonic entities and evil things? I guess with the Warrens? Even just a little bit before that, when the Exorcist came out. The Exorcist is the first time somebody used the Ouija board and then the girl got possessed and everything went to hell. Because of the Ouija board. Now today people think the Ouija board is a portal to hell opening for demons. <laughs> when prior to the exorcist, it was this innocent toy for connecting with spirits and being there. But you're right. The Warrens. I'm sorry. I have to do my soapbox on the Warrens. Okay. The Warrens were self-professed demonologists. And if you're a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. So to the <laughs> Warrens, maybe it was grandma hanging out in the house. Maybe this grandma saying, ooh, cool, let's do this and do that. But to the Warrens, nope, it's a demon. We need to call in the exorcist and send them to hell. And it's like, God damn, not everything is a demon. Most things aren't bad. And then their notoriety shot through the roof because of their work and these movies that are out now. And it's like the people who are behind some of these movies, the real stories behind mm-hmm. the movies are just like, no, it wasn't as bad as what these movies are showing. 
and things didn't get bad until the Warrens showed up and made things bad because they insisted it was a demon here. And I was like, no, it doesn't have to be like that. (laughs) I've never, I've been on quite a few paranormal investigations. I've never encountered a demon. Right. You know, I've done some magical workings, never had anything bad happen. I've been reading tarot since I was 12. Nothing bad (laughs) happened. Well, this comes back to my... I have nine rules of interacting with the paranormal. The big one is similarities attract and perpetuate. Whatever your state of mind is, is what you're going to draw to you. This is where you can go onto TikTok and you see these kids playing around with a Ouija board and they have a bad experience. Why are they having a bad experience? Because they watched other people on TikTok having a bad experience who watched movies like The Exorcist And they don't have any training. They don't have any background when doing this work. They just see a scary paranormal show, scary paranormal TikTok. They're scared to death themselves. They're going to get out the Ouija board and they're going to have a bad time. Someone like you and me and other people who've done our study, who've done our research, who know how to move into a higher state of mind, how to create sacred space around us, create that energy around us. We can use these exact same tools have wonderful, beautiful experiences because, another one of my rules, you're in charge of the energetic environment around you. You know how to set that energy around you. And that energy around you is a reflection of your inner world. And I don't want to say this as I'm blaming the victim because there are some people that have paranormal problems going on in their house. And I want to empower them that they can shift that energy around them, shifting their inner beliefs, shifting their inner worlds. And I've done this with people. I've had people that have had some really bad crap going on in their house, and we've I've taught them a few different things. The first thing is, if something goes wrong and wonky in your house, laugh at it. Have a genuine laugh. Because if it is a malevolent entity, like we talked about, it's going to try to feed off of your fear. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're laughing and you're having a good time and you're pushing out this laughter energy, that thing is going to get poisoned. Makes sense. It's, going to get rid of it's it's, sometimes it'll double down because you were a good source of energy before Uh so sometimes it'll go on a higher attack well double your laughter just really get into it the other thing i tell people and this like is dramatically shifting i call it the compassion shift the compassion shift happens when ooh, there's something scary there's something awful in the house oh my god what are you going to do to me it's a demon or you can go oh maybe there's somebody stuck or lost or needs help How can I help you? What is a way I can reach out and help you? Again, if it's a malevolent negative entity, it's not going to want that compassion from you. Mm -hmm. It's going to want you to be afraid. It's going to be wanting you going, oh my God, what are you going to do to me? But if you reach out and you're like, hey, can I help you? Now, if it's something in the house that you're misinterpreting, like it's grandma or it's a little kid playing or curious nature spirit, and you get rid of that fear, oh my God, what are you going to do to me? And you go to, oh, how can I help you? You're going to open this doorway to build a connection, to build a rapport, and it's going to shift your interpretation of what the paranormal is, which leads into my favorite rule of working with the paranormal. The more you interact with the paranormal, the safer it gets. Because you start to dispel all of those paranormal investigator shows. You dispel all of those movies through your own personal experience. You get to see that that thing in your house... It's just a house spirit, just tinkering and playing with stuff. It's not something there to hurt you or scare you. It's just 
curious little playful bugger. And then when you see that and you can have fun with that, wow, all of the bad stuff like instantly stops. Mm-hmm. And it never comes back because you were the one creating it. Right. And when you see that and you have this great reaction, it's like, woo, this paranormal stuff is wonderful. It's beautiful. Like my experience has been, I, uh, I think the spirits sometimes enjoy. They're like, oh my God, you recognize I'm here. I've been here like forever. Nobody's even noticed me. Now you're, you notice me and, and they're happy. You know, I mean, it's like they want it, they want that interaction. Like they can't believe that we're interested in them. Exactly. I've seen that so many times. That's why seances are so wonderful is because there's so many spirits out there that are like, I've been hanging around you all this time and you've been ignoring me. You know, those little taps that you feel, that weird little smell that you smell or that little breeze that comes through, you know, these little telltale signs. When they show up in seance, I'm like, you know, when you're home and you feel like that little breeze that comes across and you know how it's just on your left arm? Like, yeah, what the hell is that? That's your dad saying hi. He's brushing up against your arm like he used to do. And she's like, oh, my God, really? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and when they notice that and when they can recognize it and she feels that now, she goes, hey, Dad, I love you. What's up? Wow, they're connected again. Mm-hmm. It's like he's never been gone. It's like, yeah, the body's gone, but he still exists. He's still there. And they have this wonderful interaction now. Yeah, it's right. fantastic. Man. And, and that can be healing, too. Extremely. On both sides. Yes. Yeah, because sometimes, you, you know, again, just because the person is dead doesn't mean they don't still want to be there for you. Exactly. And if you're not noticing them, then they're going to be, oh, come on, you know, like, I'm your dad or mom or whatever. And then when you notice them, it's good for both. I've had that a couple times where one of the parents was abusive when they were alive. Mm-hmm. And when they crossed over, they got some of that healing. They got some of that inner reflection and they did the holy shit moment. Like, crap, I don't mean to do this. And they were reaching out, doing the, I'm sorry, I know this would happen. And they were able to reconnect and heal together. Both sides were able to heal together. It was beautiful. And mind you, I've also had the opposite happen. I've actually, (laughs) this is one of my favorite stories about working in a seance, is there was this lady came in. She wanted to talk about her dad, connect with her dad. And we're like reaching out. And I'm like, okay, I'm getting like this guy on a boat, gold jewelry. There's a couple of ladies with him on the boat. She's like, yeah... That's my dad. I'm like, okay, great. We're connecting with him. But he says, leave me alone. I'm fine. I didn't get along with anybody there. And don't worry about me. So the, the other way can happen, too. It's like they were trying to reach out to dad, wondering why they couldn't connect. It's because dad didn't have such a great experience and wanted to move on. And he wanted to just have fun with this afterlife. And he's mm-hmm. like, guys, leave me alone. And in a weird sense, that was sort of healing, too. Hmm. But they understood he was okay. My dad stayed the same after he died. Like when he he passed away, and I had to you know sell the house, so I had to empty it. And he was a bit of a hoarder. He had a basement full of junk. And when I got rid of all, I had to pay a company to come and get all that junk and throw it all out. And I had saved like this pile of family photos that I had found in the basement, and I sat them on the on the basement steps. And I come down the next day. They're all over the place. 
So I, I, I do it again. I pick him up. I put him back on the step. Come back down the next day. Oh, <laughs> I know. I, I know. Like, like he's telling me, he's like, don't throw out all my shit. <laughs> yep. I love that kind of stuff. That's awesome. Yeah. Sometimes they don't change for a while. And that's okay, too. Yeah. He just stayed the same. Same cranky, hoarding old guy. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. What is like your most um interesting experience that you've had with the paranormal? Well, another one of my favorite stories is when I do séance. It's more of a training session. I'm not the kind of person that stands at the front of the room and says, "Oh, there's like a Somebody who's an uncle, or maybe it's a father or a grandfather whose name starts with a G, or is it a, a J? Maybe it's a K. You know, I don't do that kind. You <laughs> know, John a Edwards, little bit so. of that, yeah, a little <laughs> bit of that cold read happens a little bit so that people can get connected. But I try to teach people how to connect themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, I teach them how to use the tools, the pendulum, the dowsing rods, the Ouija boards, automatic writing. We do all of that in a seance session. And in one of these sessions, we picked up on somebody who is you know, sort of post-colonial time period. It was like a guardian or some sort of a protector. And people were picking up like, yeah, he was beheaded. And other people, yeah, he was. And we're really picking up on that. And then we found out that it was a brother that did it. And they were in conflict over not only some inheritance from the parents, but over a woman. And one brother killed the other brother. And so I tried to bring in the dad. And the dad's like, screw it. I don't want anything to do with this. Mom was unavailable. Nothing. It's like we couldn't resolve these brothers together. And I said, okay, let's bring in higher guidance. What does higher guidance say for these brothers? And we picked up that the higher guidance says, well, you guys need to reincarnate in another lifetime as brothers. And as soon as we got that, it's like a door slammed or something. They were gone. Everybody in the room was just like, what? That was weird. What happened here? And that was the end of it for a while. A few days later... I'm working with a client one-on-one, and this isn't breaking client confidentiality to talk about this, but I'm talking with this client, and he's like, I feel compelled to tell you this story. I was talking with my buddy yesterday, and he was telling me how he felt with his brother. They had a lifetime together where they didn't get along, that they were fighting, and that his brother beheaded him. And I was like, oh, are you kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) It was like, there's the brothers right there. Wow. It was, and it was like he felt compelled to tell me the story out of nowhere. Interesting. He was just like, oh. And that's kind of like a, a validation, like an external validation to the story. Mm-hmm. It was just like, right on. Cool. I love it when stuff like that happens. Yeah. <laughs> Blew my mind. I was like on the floor flabbergasted going, are you kidding me? What? Wow. Um. So before we wrap it up, man, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on. It was great having you. Um, and where's the best place for my listeners to find you? Best place is I've got a website, kdrick.com, where you can find more of my services. You can I've got a, a paranormal awareness test that you can take on there to learn more about your own abilities. And I've also got a page on there where you can book some one-on-one sessions with me. So you can we can meet up on Zoom or on the phone and talk about some of the challenges you're facing. Plus, you can also go to kdrick.teachable.com, and I've got a bunch of paranormal courses on there and some shadow work courses mm-hmm. where you can go deep into some of your own spiritual work and develop your spiritual connections 
Like I've got a seance certification course and developing your paranormal awareness on there. Plus, if you look at my name, Kadrick, on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, you'll find me there. I'm all over the place. So just my name, Kadrick, will <laughs> unlock a lot of doors for you. Well, I'll put a link to your website on the notes of this episode. And there was another one to it I had found. Like, like It was like your music or something. Yeah, Galdracraft. That was... I'll still tinker with that once in a while, but that is a musical expression of old runic formulas where I'll take like a, a old healing formula of Laukaz Alu and I'll create some music musical rituals around that one so that it becomes like a healing formula or some old Norse phrases for boosting prosperity. Mm-hmm. So that, that's some rune-based music called Galder that... It's really kind of like ritual, and there's some uh, meditations. I do have some uh, some guided meditations that I put together, and all of the music on there is runic-based also because I've got a, a formula. I've got a way of working with runes and incorporating that into music in a musical way. That's cool. Really cool. Well, this is awesome, man. Thanks for coming on again, and um, just hang out for one moment, and I'm going to play the outro. Thank you.